0: Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host.
1: I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, and my mother doesn't want to take pictures with me either. (laughs)
0: I have a feeling, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that this may be one of these times that we're going to really delve into Jason's personal issues in an episode.
1: Well, I wasn't there, uh, nor could anyone blame me for incidentally or accidentally being privy to a death of a family member. So I think, you know, actually, she is pretty much the opposite of the character of my mother because she is so unemotional, whereas my mom is all based on emotion.
0: All right. Well, maybe not. I won't. Uh, I won't push you. I'm not Judd Hirsch, so um, <laughs>
1: that's for sure.
0: That is no one could be. No one could be in this season of Awesome Movie Year. We've been talking about the films of 1980, and we are here at the Best Picture Oscar winner, which is also a debut feature, and it comes from director Robert Redford, his first film as a director. It is Ordinary People, starring Timothy Hutton. And Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore as the uh, difficult mother, let's say, and Mm Judd Hirsch as the kind sweater-wearing therapist. Some really impressive sweaters in this movie, I think, was my main takeaway from it. I wonder if the Oscar voters felt the same. They said,
1: not enough sweaters in Raging Bull." Let's right. go with ordinary people.
0: Yeah, what is he? He's always got his shirt off to box. Why is he not wearing a sweater? Where's his with that? Where's
1: his cardigan? Why is right. Jake
0: LaMotta wearing a cardigan? Seriously, if there was an Oscar for best sweaters, it would definitely go to this film. So, but this was a very it was a very successful film, not only at the Oscars, but in general. And it's always crazy. We've talked about this numerous times. These kinds of movies that now would maybe not even come out in theaters and how successful they were in the past. This movie grossed $90 million on its budget of only $6.2 million. So not only a big success, but a smaller scale production that just became a huge, huge phenomenon. It was based on a novel by Judith Guest and the novel was itself very popular. So I'm sure that helped as well as the cast. Although it's interesting to me that Three of these four actors, main actors, were really not known for film. They were really known for TV, uh, Mary Tyler Moore and and Timothy Hutton and Judd Hirsch at the time. And there was a much stronger barrier, I think, back then between are you a TV star or are you a movie star? And Redford took chances on these people and put them in this film. And obviously it worked out really well.
1: Yeah. So Mary Tyler Moore was probably as big as a TV star as there was at the time with sure. the Mary Tyler Moore show. Judd Hirsch coming off uh, Taxi, which was, you know, uh, skyrocketing at the time. Uh, Timothy Hutton was the real find, right? You know, he was kind of more of an unknown in that young, the the murderer's row of young actors in the 80s where it's like every audition is, it's me, it's Sean Penn, it's Tom Cruise, it's Emilio Estevez, it's Rob Lowe, right? And uh, Hutton, to this day, if I'm not mistaken, is still the youngest Best Supporting Actor winner. Um, Yeah, I believe
0: so. At 20, I mean, there's certainly much younger winners. I think in the other acting categories. Yeah, Anna Paquin. Anna Paquin, right, comes to mind, and I think there have been others as well. But yeah, he was he was certainly a fairly new face here. And as you said, he won that Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. The movie overall was nominated for six Oscars, and it won four of those, including Best Picture. Best Director for Robert Redford, Best Supporting Actor for Timothy Hutton, who beat his own co-star, Judd Hirsch, who was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor and did not win. It won Best Adapted Screenplay for Alvin Sargent, the screenwriter. And Mary Tyler Moore was nominated for Best Actress, but did not win. And this is a movie that, regardless, I think, of what we all think of it, it is one of those movies where the fact that it beat out Raging Bull, as we have mentioned, as well as David Lynch's The Elephant Man, and I think to a lesser degree, Coal Miner's Daughter, it is maybe known as a less deserving winner, even if people think it's a good movie.
1: I think that's true. I mean, I always grew up, you know, and there was always before Scorsese won for The Departed and kind of won all those awards, right? It was like, you know, this beat this beat Raging Bull, uh, Million Dollar Baby beats The Aviator, right? Like they they were in that category of like him getting ripped off, right? You know, and, but this is a good film. I mean, like we talked about this is a very strong Oscar year. It was Coal Miner's Daughter Elephant Man, Raging Bull and Tess, uh, which is a Roman Polanski movie, right?
0: You yeah, know? that's kind of the outlier there in that I don't think that's a movie that's really remembered all that much anymore.
1: Right. And then Redford beat David Lynch, Scorsese. Richard Rush for the stuntman and Roman Polanski. You know, uh, Mary Tyler Moore did win the Golden Globe for Best Actress, but as we know, Josh, you are a huge *Sissy Spacek* fan for *Coal Miner's Daughter*. Also, like we said, that year is just mon- we talked about it on the Gloria episode because Jenna Rollins was nominated. Goldie Hawn, Ellen Burstyn, it's just the Murderers' Row again, right? You know, and uh, same thing with supporting actor Timothy Hutton, Judd Hirsch, Michael O'Keefe, who we talked about in. Caddyshack for Great Santini.
0: Oh, no, he wasn't nominated for Caddyshack?
1: No, but The Great (laughs) Santini is an excellent movie. Robert Duvall, uh, who I love, was also nominated. Then Joe Pesci and Jason Robards, right? And uh, So Donald Sutherland, they say, is maybe the best actor to never get an Oscar nomination,
0: right? Right. He was not nominated for this nor anything, although he did eventually get an honorary Oscar. This movie, as you mentioned, the Golden Globes, it won six of those, including Best Picture Drama. And a whole bunch of other smaller awards, even if it's maybe regarded as less deserving of a best picture than, say, Raging Bull or The Elephant Man, it was certainly highly, highly regarded by a variety of awards voters and critics groups, and all of that throughout 1980.
1: It's a it's it's a more accessible film than those other two, right? I'm, sure, I think so. It's like. Not that this is like a real happy-go-lucky story here, but it's an easier story to get your head around than those other two.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. It certainly um, struck me as not only because of the cast being full of TV stars, it struck me as very TV movie-esque, even not, not even just now saying that, oh, this wouldn't go into theaters, this would be a streaming movie. But even in the context of 1980, it felt very similar to the kinds of ripped from the headlines or disease of the week kinds of TV movies that they would be airing in the 70s and 80s. And uh, that was a bit surprising to me that it felt less cinematic.
1: I think, you know, where the strengths are, I mean, whatever you feel about the story, which is a, a fine story to me, You know, I think Redford shows a lot of um, uh, ability to um, raise tension as a director. And also, you know, the performances here are really great all the way through.
0: I mean, certainly Redford, and this is common with a lot of actors who turn to directing, is working well with the actors and is really showcasing their performances. And that seems to be his main focus here. and, And he does he does do well at that.
1: But, you know, I don't want to discount this script because I thought one of the strengths of the movie was the way that they're all talking to each other without saying anything or without saying what they really need to say.
0: Right. And it is a, it is a well-constructed script. And and as far as I could tell, just from reading online summaries, it's a pretty faithful adaptation of Judith Guest's novel. So the, that whole framework comes from her and then adapted by Alvin Sargent. This is a movie that was certainly well regarded by critics. Uh, Also, again, even if maybe some or many of those critics would have preferred a different Best Picture winner, it wasn't necessarily because they thought this was a bad movie. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up and both really, really liked it. It ended up on both of their top 10 lists at the end of the year. Siskel had it at number two and Ebert had it at number five. They were highly enthused. And actually in that same episode, they review... The Great Santini, which I haven't seen, but um, they talk about how both of those movies are two of the best movies of the year at that point that they're watching.
1: And they're both family dramas. And, you know, um, as I've said about Paul Newman, Robert Duvall is about as good as you can get as an actor to me. And I I very much recommend watching The Great Santini.
0: Yeah, I was not really familiar with it. So I'll have to try to check that out someday. (laughs) Um, So Roger Ebert, in his review, he said, What I admire most about the film is that it really does develop its characters and the changes they go through. So many family dramas begin with a quote problem and then examine its social implications in that frustrating, semi factual, docudrama format that's big on TV. Ordinary People isn't a docudrama. It's the story of these people and their situation, and it shows them doing what's most difficult to show in fiction it shows them changing, learning, and growing. It's not often we get characters who face those kinds of challenges on the screen, nor directors who seek them out. Ordinary People is an intelligent, perceptive, and deeply moving film. So even Ebert kind of seeing the parallels to TV movies there.
1: Yeah, I mean, but if you're going to look at that on like a more positive hue, right, you would say. Oh, and he's he's very positive. He is very positive. Right. You would say that, you know, part of that is because of budgetary reasons or whatnot, that maybe there are more character explorations. And as we talked about, like, I think these are really clearly drawn characters and you're able to follow their progressions and their interactions in, um, and and they work in a very dramatic fashion.
0: Yeah, I think they mostly do. I wasn't crazy about Mary Tyler Moore's performance in here, which maybe I'll get a little more in in a later review. But overall, I agree with you.
1: By the way, Josh Siskel, number one movie of 1980, *Raging Bull*. Ebert, number two movie of 1980, *Raging Bull*.
0: Right, and I think that's what I'm saying. It's 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 not that they. They probably would have both agreed that Raging Bull should have won best picture, but it's not because they didn't think that this was a good movie.
1: No, it's and I, I and I think that too.
0: Right, right. And you know, I I think to contrast it with something like Crash, for example, uh or um or even Million Dollar Baby that a lot of critics were not as fully on board with, whereas this was really just an issue of there being so many good movies and particularly movies that were thought of as better. I mean, Raging Bull, maybe they didn't realize in 1980, but now we think of Raging Bull as probably one of the greatest movies of all time. So how can you compete with that?
1: Well, you can... Beat it at the Oscars, I guess that's you can.
0: <laughs> But that's you know that's that's a that's a long history of the Oscars that with that happening.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: just recently, right? Green Book was the last one that was probably like that. Yeah, think? Green Book or, is a very good example, or or even to some degree, Coda from this past year.
1: Uh, Nomadland so. too,
0: I think you could uh, you know. Was there a Nomadland and... 2? What happened in <laughs> that?
1: <laughs> she uh, she she moved around from place to place again. Yeah. Wouldn't it be Nomadland 2? She would have to stay in one place at one time. So you reverse the twist. whole system.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, Vincent Canby in the New York Times was also a fan of this film. He said, the very real achievement of Robert Redford, who makes his directorial debut with Ordinary People, and of Alvin Sargent, who meticulously adapted Judith Guest's novel for the screen is that the Jarretts become important people without losing their ordinariness, without being patronized or satirized. Ordinary People is a moving, intelligent, and funny film about disasters that are commonplace to everyone except the people who experience them. Not since Robert Benton's Kramer vs. Kramer has there been a movie that so effectively catches the look, sound, and temper of a particular kind of American existence. Jason, I know you love Kramer versus Kramer. Not
1: since a movie from last year. That's right. his last year's best picture winner. Has there been a movie that will win this year's best picture? Right? Yeah.
0: Okay. So. so maybe that's a bit dubious. But but uh, also
1: fun. I don't I like the movie, don't get me wrong, but I didn't I don't think I laughed once. I'm not saying this is a funny movie at all. So.
0: No, it's not. I don't think you're meant to laugh at any point. It's not a movie that fails to be funny. It's right. not trying to be. It's heavy.
1: It's a heavy movie,
0: man. It it's is. Heavy. It is indeed a heavy movie. So yeah, it can be. I don't know. He's enthused, but I'm not sure if he quite quite gets it all and and I think that but that he says they're not there it's not a satire and that's something that that Ebert brings up in his review elsewhere as well that maybe even in 1980 they already expect movies about suburban families to be mocking the suburbs or mocking the bourgeoisie or whatever. And this movie does not do that.
1: And I think that's to its strength. Right. You know, I mean, obviously, the title is what it was. But this is a tragic situation uh, that could happen to basically any family or this type of situation. And it's about how it's affected each one of them individually and as a whole, as, as a unit.
0: Right, and I think it is very specific. It doesn't feel like a, despite the title, it doesn't feel like a generic story that it could be about anyone. As they point out, um, it is very specifically about these people, and it it creates distinctive characters.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying a tragedy that could shake up a family life could happen to anyone,
0: and this is True. in this case how they deal with. It. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree.
2: Maybe he just really liked that pessimistic golfer impression.
0: Yeah. Somebody's telling jokes or that that awful play that they go see at the beginning of the movie that everyone's laughing at. And it's like, I don't think this is, is this supposed to actually be funny? Or is this supposed to be showing that these people will laugh at anything? I wasn't sort of clear on that.
1: Not since the last play I've seen. Have I seen a play, Josh?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so true. So despite the fact that most critics really did like this movie, I, I did grab a negative review because Pauline Kael in the New Yorker, Loathed this movie and really eviscerates it at length. And I, I could have uh, quoted a lot more, but um, it's kind of excessive. So she said, You know, you're in for it when you see the solemn white titles against a black background and in silence. Is it going to be Robert Bresson cauterizing your funny bone? When the discreet classical music starts, a piano, first just one hand and then the other, on Bell's canon in D you know it's going to reek of quality and that it's going to be an attempt at the austere manner of Kramer versus Kramer and scenes from a marriage. Movie stars who become directors sometimes seem to choose their material as a penance for the frivolous good times they've given us. Paul Newman made Rachel Rachel, and now Robert Redford has made Ordinary People, which is full of autumn leaves and wintry emotions. It's an academic exercise in catharsis. It's earnest it means to improve people and it lasts a lifetime. And she goes on, she has a very long section, just like ripping Mary Tyler Moore apart, which I feel like I, you know, I've quoted enough there, but I felt like she wasn't entirely wrong, even though I liked it a lot more than she did.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, A lot to, a lot to uh, take apart there. One, Pachelbel's Canon. What I had read was this was a piece of music that wasn't you know we kind of know it as a very popular classical music piece but up until this point it was kind of lost in time and this kind of helped re give it a resurgence
0: yeah that may be so and although i would all 100 percent believe that pauline kale is far more familiar with classical music than the average person in 1980 so maybe that's part well, of
1: well well i think you know i'll i'll wait till the next segment for to defend mary tyler more but i i'm I mean, it's a quick two hour movie. It's, and you know me, I like fast movies. This was not yeah. a hard movie to get through. And I told you that before we, before you had watched it. I'm like, it's an easy enough movie to get through. I just, uh, you know, uh, I'm not with Pauline Taylor on this one.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I'm not entirely with her either, but I just felt like she had some points that this does feel at in a way like a movie that is self-consciously, sort of drawing attention to how serious it is. And especially to me, Mary Tyler Moore's performance. And we see this a lot, even now, with actors who are known for comedy, where they take these roles, where it's not just like, hey, here's a more substantial role. It's like, look at how serious I can be. You thought I was funny, I'm dark, I'm serious. And I never got anything really more than that from her in this film.
1: Well, I guess I'm going to defend her in this segment. Okay.
0: well, we can we can move on. And and no, I mean,
1: I mean, look, first of all, she didn't cast herself. Right. Robert. True. True.
0: And I so Redford deserves some of the blame for this as well. Yes.
1: And, you know, as I always like to point out, some alternate casting, Natalie Wood and Margaret Lee Remick were the three names that were going around for this one. And, you know, who knows? But I I just disagree. I mean, I do think, you know. He was—he's an actor's first director, right? You know, so the performance that she gave, which again won a Golden Globe and was nominated for an Oscar. Oh yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Know? I mean, Pauline kale even at that time, was a, a fairly lone voice being critical of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, when we covered American Beauty and we went to the Alison Janney character, right? Could this could this character become that character in another ten years? And I thought she's so not in touch with her uh, emotions or not willing to you know confront what happened that it could turn into that i i thought it was a very effective performance
0: yeah i i wasn't you know entirely sold on it but the other performances i think are all really quite good and because part of the whole arc of this character is that she is set apart from her family members that in a weird way feeling like her delivery was off or was not as natural as theirs, maybe almost worked for the character because she's supposed to be distant from them.
1: Yeah. I mean, and you know, I'm not saying she's the bad guy, but they definitely make her out to be the, like you're saying, the one who's singled out from the rest and, you know, that she has to go away for them to heal.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people watching this movie do see her as the bad guy. There is multiple, I mean, just looking on Letterboxd, people mentioning her as like the villain or somebody saying, you know, Mary Tyler Moore plays the worst mother in movie history. And I think that's maybe a little harsh, but I do think that viewers, if not at the time, certainly over time, view her as basically the villain of this film.
1: I mean, I guess you see that, you know, because really Timothy Hutton's character, Conrad, is the main character. So Yeah, she is the one that he has the longest way to go to repair a relationship with. And at times when he's even trying, she can't can't, um, humanize them. She's not there.
0: No, she seems very stiff and distant. So I'm sure we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But um, is this a movie that, Jason, that you had seen before? Yeah,
1: I have seen this one, you know, kind of going through the classics. At some point I had uh, rented it. Uh, I liked it the first time. I liked it this time.
0: All right. Yeah, I had not seen it, although it certainly is, I guess, would say a classic. And um, But on the other hand, I think it still does carry that reputation as one of those undeserving Best Picture winners. And it's like, if you're going to watch a Best Picture nominee from 1980 as a classic film, you'd watch Raging Bull or you watch The Elephant Man. Um, although I haven't seen The Elephant Man, but I have seen Raging Bull. And I have seen Coal Miner's Daughter, which I think is great, although it's a very conventional biopic kind of movie. But I think it's a really good version of that. So I, I had not seen this and I had only kind of vague expectations and eh, it was fine.
1: You know, Josh, you, uh, you really took it to John heard in our heaven's gate episode, but at the same time, he had the elephant
0: man out there. So. Right. Well, didn't he shoot the elephant man in the in, midst of heaven's gate because right. of that shoot went on for so right, long. Right. Quite so. the year for him there.
1: And, and I want to say like, it's tough to place this. Cause like you're saying, like, would this be the first one you watch, but like, and and the English patient is a good example, right? Because that, that year, you know, Sling Blade, Shine, Jerry Maguire, right? Like all these movies that probably today are remembered better um than those than that one, which won the best picture. But the English patient is still a good movie. We we all liked it, right? So, you know, it's worth watching. It's it's um, so I think this definitely is a movie that should be watched and is still prevalent enough in pop culture, especially with the John Legend song Ordinary People which has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with this film at all. I was just going to say, I don't think it's about this movie. (laughs) But but... you know what I mean? But this is a movie that people still know the name of.
0: Sure, absolutely. And the book, too, is one that people still read, that that students get assigned in school and stuff like that. Um, And I think I did have similar expectations going into this one that I did going into The English Patient when we did an episode on that. And I think I liked The English Patient more than this. But you're right that they do occupy kind of similar places in cinematic history so dave had you seen this one
2: i hadn't and to so what you guys were just talking about a perfect example with the english patient because i remember growing up like when i was first like learning about like what the oscars are and what they celebrate i think ordinary people was the movie i associated with oscar winners you know what i mean and then english patient of course in the 90s is the movie that you know you always associate with it so i think those are great examples
1: the oscars josh yes, yes. we always have fun talking about them what should have won what did win what didn't win sometimes we agree sometimes we don't sometimes we celebrate them sometimes we castigate them if you will but we all know they're broken and they've been broken for a very long time so uh while we do need to bring them up that's not really the mark of uh what we're What we're doing here. And you should stop putting so much weight into them, Josh.
0: No, I mean, I think it's useful for us. I mean, the reason that we talk about these Oscar winners every year is I think it is a good snapshot of what people were interested in and paying attention to at the time of the year that we're talking about, even if those movies aren't necessarily the ones that are the most enduring from the year. So, I think you're absolutely right about the Oscars, though. There's plenty to criticize there.
1: Yeah. And you brought up Coda, which I liked a lot, but um, it's another very small story. And you wonder, you know, these small stories uh, often get overlooked in the Oscars. So that's an interesting comparison.
0: They do. And I think Coda is absolutely on a sort of a continuum with this film. There's a lot that those two movies have in common. So maybe they're not getting lost or the Oscars are still circling back to those kinds of films. And maybe Dave's impression of ordinary people as a, quote, Oscar movie is is actually fairly accurate. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, any other background elements you want to mention on this, Jason? Other alternate casting or anything like that?
2: Uh,
1: well, we can talk about alternate casting. But, you know, we talked about how um, uh, Donald <laughs> Sutherland wasn't nominated um, for Best Actor. And it wasn't like uh, a bunch of scrubs had beat him out. That was the year De Niro won for... Raging Bull, Duval, we already mentioned, Great Santini, John Hurt, The Elephant Man, Jack Lemmon, tribute, and Peter O'Toole, The Stuntman. So a very crowded field here.
0: Yeah, certainly there there is a lot of competition. And, and the fact that there are so many, I mean, this is such an actor's movie, as we keep saying about Robert Redford, there are only so many. You're not going to get five of your stars or even four of your stars nominated for Oscars. Usually it happens, but I think it's pretty rare. So not surprising that somebody ended up Getting left out there. So we will come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on ordinary people. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about the Best Picture Oscar winner, Ordinary People, directed by Robert Redford from the novel by Judith Guest. And One thing that struck me watching this movie is that I feel like maybe this is the kind of movie that looking at it now, we're like, oh, people go to therapy, whatever. Like That's in every movie. But at the time, going to therapy and being open about it and embracing it was a much rarer thing. And for a movie to show that as positive and important was probably uncommon. I think especially if you see psychiatry in movies at this time, it's more likely to be something that they're making fun of or something that is sinister rather right. than something that is beneficial.
1: Yeah, I, I had read in a, I mean, you know, we'd never know because some of it's on Wikipedia, but this was <laughs> this was praised for those scenes. And um, Judd Hirsch was praised, who's a great actor anyway. Sure. I mean, he's as close to a national treasure as we got left right now, you know, since Betty White died, I think, judd hirsch and gene smarter picking up that mantle for us josh so okay sure <laughs> but but no he's very good as uh, dr Berger, and i thought those scenes were effective scenes with him and hutton and the way that he made him confront you know his emotions which he was running from were were really good and it, it brought me back to you could see those influences in you know the matt damon robin williams scenes in goodwill hunting
0: yeah i thought of that as well and um also, sweater-wise, I think there's a continuum <laughs> there.
1: Nobody is more on top of the sweater game in movies than you are today, Josh.
0: I don't know. It just struck me, and I haven't seen Goodwill Hunting in a long time. But I just, I had an image of Robin Williams in a sweater uh, that's similar to Judd Hirsch's in this film, and maybe I'm just conjuring that up out of Morgan
1: Mindy Taxi. I mean, these are not that far apart, Josh.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But, but I agree. I think that those scenes. Are really good and 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 again that dynamic is something that maybe we're familiar with now. You talk about Goodwill Hunting that has a very similar dynamic, but I feel like a lot of movies where characters who are troubled go to psychiatrists or go to therapists have this same arc where they show up and they're like, "This is dumb. I don't want to do it. I'm not, I don't need this." And then there's the the therapist, the psychiatrist, over time breaks down those defenses and gets them to open up and really helps them with these breakthroughs. And by the end of the movie, it's like, wow, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And maybe that's just not something that people in 1980 had ever seen in a film.
1: Maybe not. I mean, you know, you and I uh, are both, uh, 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 what shall we say? Supporters and, uh, proprietors of the therapy
0: industry, shall we are Well, no, we're, not, we're not proprietors. We don't own anything. We're, we're consumers of <laughs> Yeah, us, we're customer, customers.
1: Like yeah. We're patients. I don't know, whatever. We both go to therapy. Not we together. Did. It's not an awesome movie your joint therapy couples <laughs> therapy session. That would be
0: amazing and horrible.
1: But I mean, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, and maybe you could make that movie of like the patient who's just like, all right, I'm going to open up. blah, 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 blah. blah, 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 blah. And the, the therapist is like, all right, we got to slow down. But... It is tough to, you know, kind of confront those things.
0: Sure. I mean, and obviously the character in this film is dealing with heavy stuff. A lot of people, especially now that it's more accepted, people go to therapy to deal with their everyday problems, which I think is a great thing. And I think anyone can really benefit from. But, it, you know, what's going on with Timothy Hutton's character with Conrad in this film is is serious. You know, he lost his brother in this accident this boating accident where he himself could have died. And then he has attempted suicide and he's dealing with some really serious issues here.
1: Yeah, he blames himself for Bucky's death. The Conrad character blames himself for his brother's death. Um, And, uh, you know, I think what, what I like is how each of these family members are processing or not processing their grief and dealing with it differently. Donald Sutherland's character, Calvin, is very overprotective and coddling in a way um, and really just wants to make sure Conrad's okay, whereas the Mary Tyler Moore character just really can't deal with it. Maybe Bucky was her favorite son, it seems like, or whatnot, but she just can't deal with the death and at the same time just wants to have a normal life. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's even a possibility at that point.
0: Right. She's clearly in denial or wants all of this stuff to go away, be swept under the rug in a way that is not possible. She wants basically her husband and son to be different people that they're not ever going to be. And she can't accept them for who they actually are.
1: I I mean, to defend her, she does like, you know, the golfing, the going out. Like she wants to have good times. And like that's a good thing that she doesn't, you know, as opposed to Conrad, who thinks he has to punish himself all the time. Right. She still wants to at least try to, uh, enjoy what she can out of life. So, you know, that's not a bad thing. She, uh, it's just a impossible situation that they're all trying to get through.
0: Right. And I think the difference is that you're right. Conrad is, is punishing himself and he's not in a good place, but he does, even if he's resistant to it at first, he does that work. That's necessary to get himself to a better place where he can enjoy things in life. Maybe he doesn't like to golf. I don't know. But I mean, there's a lot of golfing discussion and golfing planning. And this movie was was some
1: They're upper crust white people from the suburbs <laughs> in Illinois.
0: Of course, there's a lot of golfing. Stuff, I guess right? there's nearly as much golf in this movie as there is in Caddyshack. But um, you're you're not wrong. Like Obviously, her solution to things is let's go do let's go back to our normal life as much as possible. Let's go do stuff that's fun, whether that's golfing or going out to see this terrible play or going to our friends' parties or whatever. But it's not that you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, but I think you have to be able to get yourself in a position where you're okay doing that and she's not willing to process any of those emotions, right? Or maybe doesn't quite have them, which I think they're sort of implying toward the end of the movie that maybe she just doesn't have the capacity for these emotions.
1: I mean that's a that's an and that's an interesting character beat, I think. But at the same time, I'd say some of the more memorable scenes are she does go into Bucky's room alone and she just sits and kind of it overwhelms her. You know, there's also the scene where Calvin wants to take a picture of Beth and Conrad and it just it's too uncomfortable for Beth. She can't take a picture with her own son. There's a scene where you know Conrad comes in late at night and her parents are back from the golf trip and she he hugs her and he says, I'm glad you're back. And she doesn't know what to do with that. And it's sad, man. That's a very sad situation. And that's not only uh, sad for her, but it's incredibly sad for him that his mom, they can't have a relationship.
0: Right. And you get the impression that, I mean, a lot of what this movie is about is about sort of the benefits of psychiatry, the benefits of therapy, that Conrad is going to be in a better place and better able to handle his emotions in his life going forward. And Calvin probably too, who eventually goes to see Dr. Berger at least one time. We're not sure if he he continues to go, but both of them are kind of getting to better places. And you get the impression that Conrad is just not going to have any kind of relationship with his mother probably into his adult life. It's just it's just not going to happen. And that is sad as much as this movie has kind of a hopeful message to it. Uh, this, this person dealing with their trauma and overcoming their trauma, there's something there that's broken that isn't going to be fixed despite uh, however much therapy he goes to.
1: Yeah. And I didn't really care for, I didn't think they were the greatest flashback scenes of the of watching Bucky die, you know, getting right. swept on. I didn't think they were they showed the uh full enormous capacity of a storm like that, obviously, you know, um shot on a budget or whatever.
0: Yeah, you can definitely see the budget in those scenes that are all shot in very close where you could almost see the edges of the pool, you right. know, right yeah, outside tank. the frame. But I will
1: say the um the flashbacks where you see Beth as a happy mother with the two boys. Those are effective, and they show you just how much she has been affected by this thing, even if she doesn't realize it.
0: Yeah, I guess there's one weird flashback, and this was something that Pauline Kale pointed out in her review, and where I, I was watching it, and it's it's this sort of you know soft focus flashback to the two brothers, and it's meant to show the connection that Beth has with Bucky, and they're laughing and talking about something. And at first when I was watching that, because she's she's obviously meant to be younger, they change her hairstyle. And I was like, oh, wait, is this, is she meant to be really young here? And I didn't recognize the Bucky actor. That may be the first time you've seen him in a flashback. It seemed like they were flirting with each other. There was a weird, almost sexual vibe or romantic vibe between her and Bucky.
1: Here he goes again, Dave. There's nothing homosexual <laughs> in this movie. So now he has to make it incestual. Classic Josh.
0: It wasn't just me. It's (laughs) something that Pauline Kale pointed out as well. So I don't know. That was a weird scene to me and didn't quite, to me, instead of showing that she was a loving mother to Bucky, even if it's not sexual or incestual, it showed her as sort of this, again, weird robot-like person who doesn't know how to have emotions. I mean, maybe she's someone who's like on the autism spectrum or something before that was a thing that people ever talked about. But it didn't quite sell me, I think, in that flashback scene the way that it's meant to.
1: You know, Josh, what I like is the, the minutiae or minute, if you will.
0: If you would like to pronounce it wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Classic Josh, always pronouncing things correctly. Of, you know, just those little conversations of, you know, how upset they get when Conrad quits the swim team or... Oh your friends picking you up that's great you know just all these things where calvin is trying to connect to conrad and he just is reaching and grasping for anything right to to just figure out their bond which which they do eventually and i think that's very effective and and conrad just wants them to cut through all the surrounding stuff and get there but he's not able to at the beginning either and i think A lot of that stuff is the very effective stuff. And uh, all those like things where you mentioned the party and everyone's just talking about nothing. And it's like, you know, I mean, this story, any one of those families probably, you know, would have had their own different story. And that's what I think is, is is interesting. We focus on the Jarrett's. They're good. And uh, I, I think that's the most effective stuff in this film.
0: Yeah, I like that party scene. And I suppose, you know, we were talking about Vincent Canby and why would he call this movie funny? I suppose that party scene is the one part where you could maybe think of it as funny because there are so many of those inane conversations about about nothing as you say or about things that are weirdly important to these people that are meaningless and there's there's this other another scene later where Donald Sutherland, where Calvin is jogging with—I don't know if it's meant to be his coworker or just the neighbor, someone he knows—and the neighbor is talking in this ridiculous detail about some stock trade that he made, and it's just so absurd. I love that scene, and it's obviously (laughs) so incredibly important to this guy, and and it's just—it's—it's nothing. So yeah, I did like those details.
1: Yeah, and it overwhelms Calvin, you know, with everything else, and that's the scene where he falls down when he ends up running on his own, right? So. But Josh, I think you know. Look, the '80s, right? This generation. I'm <laughs> look, serious. The right?
0: '80s, yeah. You know, no, I right. mean,
1: look, like what? What is? You know, we're talking about connecting this to other movies, right? That conversation that those two had. What? Where does that line up in later in the '80s with Gordon Gecko? Do you know sure. what I mean? Like, no, that, you're
0: absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, um, this is certainly emblematic of the kinds of things that we see in pop culture in the 1980s. And that is already, this movie is kind of mocking or showing as being hollow and empty, even though this is the beginning of the 1980s, this is already something that people could see was consuming people and was, but, but was hollow and was meaningless.
1: Right, that party scene, you know, Calvin ends up telling a friend about how Conrad's going to therapy. And that really, uh, you know, angers, upsets Beth. And that that's another interesting beat in the movie.
0: Right. And I think that's one of those things where there's not nearly that same kind of stigma about being in therapy anymore that there was at this time. It would be less of a shocker to say, oh, my teenage son is going to see a therapist because lots of teenagers are going to see therapists these days. And its its it's accepted, not by everyone necessarily, but it certainly shows how much of a stigma there was. And there is that one other line, I think it comes from Beth's mother when she mentions the doctor and she's like, oh, a Jew? You know, where that was the the sort of reputation that these, these upper crust Protestants would not go see a Jew doctor. And we think of, what do we think of when people are going to psychiatrists? We think of like Woody Allen, like, oh, my analyst, or whatever, so there is certainly that stigma there.
1: Dave. Tell me you weren't hoping Josh would have gone at all in on that Woody Allen impression right there. <laughs> I, I would have been realized wonderful. That
0: I can't do <laughs> it. So I just didn't try.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. We're always trying to contextualize what this is at the time of its release, right? You know, and then you have that other interesting character, the Karen character, played by Dinah Manoff. So now we've talked about both the daughters on Empty Nest, which makes me happy in this season, you know. <laughs> but she was conrad's like really close friend when he was in the hospital and you know he it's interesting how he talks about how he misses it cuz that's where they could have the laughs and it's where he felt free i guess again and she is saying how well she's doing and that this could be their best year ever and then you know that catharsis that he eventually has what brings him to that low point spoiler alert is that phone call where he calls her and he finds out that she killed herself and that is um I mean, that still is, I remember that from the first time watching it, but that's still a very devastating scene and um, really pushes the narrative forward for him.
0: Right. And I think the point there is that he thinks he's the one who's having a hard time and she's got it all together. And she tells him that she also went and saw a psychiatrist after getting out of the hospital, which may or may not have also been Dr. Berger. I wasn't sure if they were trying to imply that. Well,
1: well it, it, I think it might have been because when. He does tell Berger about it. He sa- Berger says how upsetting it is to him, too. And, and it seems like it's a personal connection.
0: Right. That may be. But the point being that whether it's him or not, she decided, she says, oh, I didn't really need it anymore. And Conrad thinks, oh, wow, that must mean that she has her life together, when really it means the opposite, is that she's just in denial and she's not willing to face her problems and work through them the way that Conrad ultimately is. So um, I do think that's a very interesting relationship in the way he talks about the hospital, like you were saying. And I think that also goes to this stigma that once he's out in, in sort of the real world, he can't really talk right. about his issues except with Dr. Berger. Right. He he's, getting,
1: he's just automatically cured,
0: right? Right, right. Everyone wants to move on, his friends, his parents, everyone in his life doesn't want to talk about it. Whereas in the hospital, he could freely talk about it all the time. And that was something that was comforting to him. So I, that is an interesting dynamic.
1: So you mentioned, uh, or I mentioned Dinamanoff,
0: and we mentioned that neighbor, James Berry, seeking or psyching, right? And, oh, James B. psyching. Yeah. I think yeah. he's the, he's, is he also, he's definitely the co worker for Calvin.
1: Yeah. I think. I think they're doing the running together. And then you got M. Emmett Walsh as the coach and Elizabeth McGovern as the love interest. So you, it's really not just, put these four stars together, but really a great supporting cast who are able to make the most of their screen time.
0: Yeah, it is a great cast. And Elizabeth McGovern, we know a lot now, but this was also a debut for her. She was still uh, in school, I think, and got a leave from Juilliard to be in this film. And I really like the dynamic between her character. She's a a classmate of of Conrad's who likes- They are
1: in the choir together.
0: They are and thank you for singing because that was what this episode <laughs> needed was some singing. Um, okay. But But one thing that's great about her is that she is the only person who is really interested in hearing about his difficulties, who is asking him about this stuff, not in a sort of morbid way, but in like really wanting to know his true self. And it creates some kind of bumps that they don't there may be some miscommunication, but ultimately they have this really nice dynamic. And and I, I liked that relationship a lot. And I feel like I could have even used a little more of it.
1: Yeah, I, I'm gonna agree with you because I mean, I guess in the book they were already having sex, and here we're seeing them at the beginning. But um that because that scene where they're at the bowling alley and they're talking and they're finally getting into it, and then all the jocks come in and it kind of ruins the thing. I I don't think that was as effective as it was meant to be, and and that's because maybe we haven't. Establish them uh, at a deeper level yet.
0: Right. But on the other hand, they're just kind of getting to know each other. And you see that they're creating this tentative connection. And and one small thing can just ruin that or appear to ruin it until they're able to rise above it because they're actually probably more mature than the adults in this film.
1: So that part was originally offered to Kay Lenz, who turned it down. And if it wasn't going to be Elizabeth McGovern, it was going to be Marie Osmond.
0: Oof. Well, good choice. Mm were Elizabeth McGovern there instead. I, I thought she was quite and, good.
1: And as we said, Emilio Estevez, Michael J. Fox, Sean Penn, Rob Lowe, all up uh, or in the conversation, you know, and all big stars within a few years of this. Gene Hackman, I think, was originally slated to play Calvin and couldn't work out the finances, um, which would have been interesting, maybe a little more gruff performance. Yeah, there.
0: I feel like he needs to be this this sort of emotionally available male figure that Donald Sutherland can maybe play better than Cackman could.
1: Yes. And uh, Berger, the name that came up, Josh. Richard Dreyfus. Now go do the impression.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Thank
0: you. As much as we've mocked Richard Dreyfus here, surprisingly often, um, he probably could have done a good job. You,
1: I don't mock him. I think I do it with love, and he's a good actor. But I do think you know Judd Hirsch really uh, delivers, and you know all all these guys deliver. I know you don't like Mary Tyler Moore. I disagree with that, but I think the acting really carries this thing. And, And Timothy Hutton, you, you know who went on to still works, but didn't go on to be the biggest star in the world. Like, you can see this as like, oh, this dude's going to be like a Tom Cruise level star.
0: Right. Absolutely. You can definitely see how this grabbed people's attention, seeing him basically for the first time and that this could have led to to really big things. So, yeah, I just... I, I was not on board with Mary Tyler Moore's performance. And I think that did keep me at a distance a bit from some of the drama that she's very, very central to. And and I think this is a movie that does suffer from pioneering things that we're now very familiar with. And it doesn't seem as fresh watching it
1: now. Ironically, you were kept at a distance by the character who keeps everyone at a distance.
0: Right. But I think like I no, like I was saying before, I think some of that actually works to the favor of the movie, but I think. I need to not be at a distance from the overall family story. And that did sort of push me away. I was never quite as emotionally invested in this as I should have been.
1: Did you feel, I mean, I felt like Donald Sutherland, he's really good at like playing that, like, hey, I'm holding it together on the surface, but there's this huge amount of pain underneath there.
0: Right. And you get that over time, especially then when he finally goes and sees Dr. Berger and he lays a lot of that out. And then he has a scene Later on where he's sitting at the table crying in the middle of the night and Mary Tyler Moore comes in and she just doesn't, you know, just like doesn't compute for her. But he has this long monologue about the sort of emptiness of their relationship and you really, you really get that what's all been going on under the surface for him. So certainly he's good in this.
1: I had read that. uh, They shot that. And then Sutherland watched the dailies and thought he cried too much. And and they reshot it. And what we see is the reshoot. But Hmm. interesting to read about. So
0: Yeah, I wonder. I mean, and again, I feel like this is a movie that is doing something that we see more now that maybe we didn't at that time, which is making a big point of men being in touch with their emotions. And maybe there was a degree to which Donald Sutherland thought that Being too emotional might not be a good look for him. I I don't know. That scene is really good though. Whatever he did, it worked.
1: Well, Josh, I think we have to rate this one out of five therapy sessions, don't you?
0: I I think that is a, a good way to do it. So uh, what are you going to give it?
1: I gave it three and a half therapy sessions, three good fill sessions and another half, which means we got more work to do. But that's what therapy is. Three and a half therapy sessions.
0: That it is. Such a healthy attitude toward therapy that you have there, Jason. <laughs> I'm going to give it three therapy sessions. I appreciate what it was doing, but it didn't always connect with me. But, uh, you know, it's fine. So Dave?
2: Uh, I'm also going three, Uh, solid movie, great performances, a little dated, I think, but uh, it was good though.
0: Right, I think the datedness is something that really struck me and that's, it's hard to fault movies for that, but it's also hard to avoid feeling that way.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and I I guess I focus more on the performances in those uh, situations than, you know, what you guys found to be
0: dated in them. Right, and that's fair too. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of ordinary people. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we have been talking about the best picture Oscar winner, Ordinary People from director Robert Redford. And I think the big thing here, legacy-wise, is the launch of Robert Redford's career as a director. As as a respected director and as a director of movies that get nominated for Oscars, which really seemed like his career. And you can see that as a good thing or as less of a good thing. But he really, as a director, became this person who specialized in this kind of middle brow awards bait. And Mm -hmm. whether you like those movies or not, the Oscars generally really liked them.
1: How many times was he nominated as a, uh, I got him as four Oscar noms, but was it it all for directing? No,
0: I think directing wise, it may have only been for quiz show in addition to this and probably a couple of acting nominations. But even though, you know, I didn't look up every potential nomination, but I feel like whether or not these movies were specifically nominated for Oscars, maybe for their performances or for other aspects, there are all these very like serious, but accessible kinds of movies. You know, A River Runs Through It, The Milagro Beanfield War, The Horse Whisperer, uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which I think gets to the point where it's almost like a self-parody. But to be honest, I haven't seen any of those movies. So it's really just You're, just, you're
1: just commenting on it without any knowledge. Wonderful.
0: Um, well, Show, I mean, have, you, have you seen those films, Jason?
1: I've seen Quiz Show and it's a great
0: movie. And I believe, and I think Quiz Show is the one that like critically has that reputation of sort of transcending the uh you know middle brownness of of the aims and being a great film and i i would i was hoping to maybe make time for that and i wasn't able to but i i do want to see that film
2: did you see any of these dave uh i mean i'm sure i saw legend of bagger vance back when it came out i'm pretty sure i saw lines for lambs too but that's so long ago right
1: right yes as lately his directing career hasn't been as uh, effective, shall we say. But he's still making, you know, good movies as an actor. All is lost from a few years ago. The old man in the gun, right? You know, so. Yeah, I think yeah. he's
0: basically said now he's retired from acting, which means that his final acting performance was in Avengers Endgame. Quite, quite, sure, quite everybody's,
1: everybody's in that. But, you know, <laughs> look, The Sting, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, all the President's Men, you know, the natural sneakers out of Africa. He's like one of the biggest legends that there is. And to me, and probably to you, Josh, as an independent film fan, we love him because of the spotlight he's put on independent films as the, you know, founder of Sundance.
0: Right. And I think, you know, Sundance started a few years. We talked about in our 1984 season, that was the first year that Sundance was Sundance. And we talked about the first ever winner. So this was around the time that he was maybe attending that USA Film Festival that became Sundance eventually, and getting interested in independent film. And even though this movie feels very mainstream, you can see this as maybe Redford's version of what he saw in independent film, taking that inspiration.
1: And now it wouldn't get into Sundance because these stars, while known, aren't big enough stars to be in a yeah, Sundance movie. Maybe
0: maybe that's the case. So I did want to just to circle back to his directing career. I haven't seen any of those like acclaimed films, but I have seen... His last ones, three yeah. movies, Lions for Lambs, uh, The Conspirator, and The Company You Keep, which was the last movie he directed in 2012, all of which are quite bad and are very like didactic political lectures, which he kind of ended up. Uh, that's where his directorial career ended up. So. Don't see those movies. Probably go see the earlier ones instead.
1: And watch and you know watch the great classics that
0: I mentioned that he. Yeah, of, of his acting performances certainly, and I think yeah. he is still a great actor.
1: Alvin Sargent, not only a best screenplay for this, but also for Julia. I think in seventy seven he wrote Paper Moon. He's on the story of What About Bob and and all the Spider Man movies. He's a you know from Spider Man two on. He's influential and in everything.
0: Yeah, it's weird that he became this big like Spider Man uh, screenwriter, but I guess you got to take whatever work you can get. And Spider Man 2, which I think he's the sole credited screenwriter. The best on, one. The is, one. Yeah, and not only that, but uh, like one of the best superhero movies ever and better than ordinary people. I'm just going to say it.
1: <laughs> fair, fair, Josh. The other person I read who worked on this script went Uncredited, and we talked about how much uncredited work she did was Nancy Dowd when we talked about her as the writer of Slapshot.
0: Oh, hey, that's an interesting one. Not a lot of parallels here between this and Slapshot, although uh, I guess there was some sports. Maybe Emmett Walsh's uh, insensitive coach character could have been in Slapshot somehow.
1: Ah, Hey, man, Emmett Walsh, I'm still working, still a great character actor, one of the best that we have, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this was an interesting departure, as we've said, for Mary Tyler Moore, who was really known for comedy and known for TV comedy, of course, to uh, iconic sitcom runs on The Dick Van Dyke Show and The Mary Tyler Moore Show. And she didn't do much in the way of theatrical films, but this was a period when she appeared in a lot of TV movies that were basically like The crappy version of what this is. You know, the kind of thing that Ebert is pointing to as like, this is a better version of that. The disease of the week ripped from the headlines kind of film. She did a lot of those in the, in the eighties.
1: Well, uh, a few things about that, you know, she and Grant Tinker were married and they like produced every hit show that ever existed that Norman Lear didn't produce back then. Right. You know, WAKRP in Cincinnati, St. Elsewhere, New Heart, Hill Street Blues. They did all right for themselves. Right. And she's like Candace Bergen. She won seven Emmys for her work in those comedy shows. So I think part of it might've been her health. You know, we know she had health issues for a long time and maybe taking those TV movies were a little less um, taxing than taking on a feature.
0: Sure. I mean, although those are feature length films and maybe they just have shorter shooting styles. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And she also continued to do TV comedy guest appearances and some short-lived sitcoms and stuff. And worked pretty steadily. Like you said, she had health issues later in her life. She died in 2017. But I mean, not to knock Mary Tyler Moore as one of the pioneers and the most important figures in television comedy. But I think in terms of drama, eh, maybe she didn't reach those heights.
1: Donald Sutherland... Great actor, like we said, uh, you know, uh, again, two Golden Globe wins, nine nominations. Uh, I always think of him as the professor in Animal House, and but you know, he's always there as a character with some weight to him, and you know, who can present a very serious situation, whether it's the world ending or a family that is in strife.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true, and he's incredibly prolific. Looking at his his career rundown, and he's still working. Very, very steadily. And you're right, he comes in, you know, he plays like the president in the Hunger Games movies. And you know, you know, when you see his face on screen, you're like, oh, some serious shit is going down here in this movie.
1: Right. He's got a he's got three in development, Swimming with Sharks, which I think is a, a limited series based on the film from the 90s. Yeah, that's
0: been, that's been released already, or was very recently released, I think. Okay. Yeah, on the Roku channel.
1: Oh, there you go. So watch it right where he's doing a voice in a you know an animal jungle movie or something like that i don't know what it is but uh it's a voice movie you know a cartoon and then the most the one that sounds most interesting is mr harrigan's phone directed by john lee hancock on this based on the stephen king story where an old man dies and like his young friend takes his cell phone and uh, I guess, calls it and then like a week later gets a text message back on there. that sounds like it could be a cool movie.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I love Stephen King. And so I'm curious. I haven't read that story, but I'd be curious to see how that's going to turn out. And they're also making a big uh, Hunger Games prequel that's all about the younger version of his character. So I assume he'll make some sort of cameo appearance in that because because, of course, he will. And so, yeah, it's amazing between him and Judd Hirsch, both you know, in their like mid 80s are still working incredibly steadily. Judd Hirsch also insanely prolific uh, in film roles and in TV. We talked about him when we talked about Independence Day in our 1996 season. And he's got that new Steven Spielberg movie, The Fablemans that he's going to appear in. And it's amazing that these guys just don't stop.
1: Yeah, right. Judd Hirsch, two Emmys, two Tonys and a Golden Globe. So, you know, his work on the stage and you know he, and obviously he's proven he can do I um, mean, proven like like you said he's a legend, but he is well versed in comedy and drama.
0: Yeah, of course, and and continues to to work in both of those modes, and is always someone welcome to see on the screen. He's uh, I know you
1: like uh, Kelly Reichardt; he's in her new movie as well yeah, I'm
0: whatever on Kelly Reichardt, but- I so.
1: know you're uh, somewhat indifferent towards <laughs> Kelly Reichardt. He I've, I've, s-
0: I've <laughs> seen many of her films. So no, I'm sure he'll do well in that film. And that's good for him still working with challenging filmmakers.
1: Yeah. I would say Elizabeth McGovern really has uh, had quite a resurgence in her career. You know, She was kind of one of these teen queens, like we say in the eighties with all these teen actors. And then kind of grew up a little um with, like, she's having a baby. But
0: now with Downton Abbey, like, she's a, she's a boss, dude. Yeah, Downton Abbey was a huge resurgence for her, and she did a lot of stage work later in her career and I think maybe was not in the spotlight as much on film or in, in TV, and she moved to the U.K., and because of that, I think was able to were, make this comeback in Downton Abbey, which is probably at this point, the thing that she's most known for. And oh, yeah. we've got a new Downton Abbey movie out. And yeah, that's just an endless uh, source of success for her. Well,
1: fans of Racing the Moon are going to be really upset that you said that.
0: All of those fans <laughs> of that movie that I have not at all, uh, at all heard of. So um, Timothy Hutton, you, like you said, Jason, he didn't go on to become like this big superstar. He wasn't one of the biggest breakouts of that pack of people that you were talking about, like Tom Cruise and Emilio Estevez and Rob Lowe, but also works constantly had a bit of a personal scandal. well, i'm gonna I'm gonna jump in on that.
1: He was accused uh, twenty to thirty years later of uh, rape and the Vancouver police investigated it and didn't charge him with anything because, as they said, there was nothing uh, that would substantiate that. So, I mean, he was accused of something. I don't know what more of a scandal that that could be because legally he was found that that there was not enough there to do anything with.
0: Well, I mean, I think, have we seen as we've seen with many of these situations, that just because the legal system doesn't follow through doesn't mean that there isn't something there. And I don't know. Obviously, none of us know what really happened there. The point is that it definitely created some bumps in his career. And he is still working, though. And I'm sure because, Jason, as you mentioned, it didn't end up with any legal ramifications. There are plenty of productions that will still cast him. But you know, he never was on that superstar level. He was really more on that kind of TV performance level, and did a lot of that leverage. And uh, that was probably the biggest one that lasted for many, many seasons. I'm sure he'll continue working, but you can't say that something like that doesn't create difficulties for him.
1: Oh, certainly. But he's in the new James Franco movie, so that'll make up for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not the person you want to be associated with. Look, here's some.
1: Problem. Here's three, here's three fun facts about Timothy Timothy Hutton. All right, he, he directed the the music video for the Cars song Drive, which is an awesome 80s song.
0: Sure, yeah. Um,
1: He romantically was linked to Deborah Winger, Debbie Moore, Uma Thurman, and Angelina Jolie. Okay, good for you. And he's one of the owners of the iconic and influential American cuisine bar, uh, PJ Clark's in New York.
0: Huh.
2: Okay. (laughs) Well, on that note... He was nominated for an Emmy for American Crime.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, man. he's done a lot of good TV work and is, is I mean, is a good is he, you know, he's a good actor. He's one of those that maybe, again, he's not a superstar, but generally if he showed up in a movie or a TV show in a supporting role, you would know that he would give a good performance.
1: Who's going to drive you home tonight?
0: Okay. Anything else you want to talk about on the legacy of this film, Jason?
1: I feel like I ended it on the right point.
0: Definitely. Definitely. So that is Ordinary People. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. You can. We're at
1: AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. We appreciate all the feedback we get, mostly from Twitter and from Dave's uh, Popcorn and Puzzle Beasts' Facebook group. But hey, Josh, as Dave reported, we had a record day for downloads recently. So we want to thank all of you for listening and downloading and supporting. Feel free to leave us a five-star review if you like it. If not, that's okay too. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on all those socials or Harris, comedy. My website, GoForJason, is as dated as uh, some of the scenes in this film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Josh also dated. I think I launched it in 2004, and I don't know if the look of it has ever changed, but it's classic now. Um, Josh Bell Hates everything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And yeah, absolutely. Please continue to give us feedback. When you think we're stupid and we don't know what we're talking about, which happens, or you think we've uh, given you some insight maybe on a film here or there, it's possible. And you can do that in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group, which is from our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: And you can also find Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a five-star review too while you're at it. And uh, follow us on social media at PiecingPod.
0: And what is in our next episode, Jason?
2: Dave, why
1: don't you take it? Because it's your pick, big boy.
0: Oh, that's right. It is my pick. Well,
2: uh, we are going to be talking about Stir Crazy, which I haven't seen since I was a kid. But I loved it back then. And I'm really excited to rewatch it.
0: So tune in next time for Stir
2: Crazy. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.